This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. How are you today, Lance? Doing fantastic today, per usual. And I'm excited to be here with our really fascinating guest that joined us a few weeks ago. I hope everyone's doing well. Tim, how are you? I am doing great. Thank you very much for asking. Here we're speaking with new friend Morgan Rector of the excellent podcast Human Monsters. And this podcast is a recent addition to the Glassbox Media family. So we welcome Morgan with open arms and really recognize what he's doing with his show as something unique and important. He's not officially educated in the world of psychology, but what he does is tackle these individuals who have done horrendous crimes And right off the top, he's very transparent about the abuse that he suffered as a child and how that qualifies him in some way to analyze the behaviors of these people that he's labeling human monsters. I want to just be honest and say I was not looking forward to this because I didn't think that I had the mental capacity to have that conversation at that particular time of day and just, you know, before the holidays and after speaking about other crimes and and other episodes that we had done, it just seemed like it was going to be super heavy. And when Morgan first started speaking, he came out of the gate in this tone that ended up being really endearing. While it's not monotonous, he does speak in a really matter-of-fact way about really awful things, but his personality comes across where you end up almost enjoying the way he's delivering this information in spite of its content, if that makes sense. And that continued on through the entire conversation, and even when he was asked about bad reviews or just the really extreme nature of his show... He responded in that same tone, which gives you this comforting feeling again. And it was really interesting. And by the time we were done, I was really happy that we went through with having this conversation. Yeah, I was riveted to what he was saying. He's definitely an interesting guy. And you can follow him on Instagram at Human Monsters Podcast. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Morgan. And if there are any human monsters out there who want to listen to the show without ads, if we dare approach them, what would we say to them, Tim? Well, if you would like to listen to Crawlspace ad-free, you can do so by going to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and subscribing there. Or you can now do it on Apple Podcasts. It's just $4.99 a month and you get every single episode of Crawlspace ad free plus you also get our weekly bonus show which is a lot of fun now these aforementioned human monsters if they wanted to follow us on social media where on earth would they be able to do that they can do that on tiktok instagram facebook youtube and twitter at crawlspace podcast or crawlspace pod and that's not exclusively for human monsters that's for regular humans too right it's open to the public and we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors and we'll be right back with morgan rector This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Morgan of Human Monsters. How are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? We are doing fantastic, and we've been looking forward to this conversation for a little while now, and... I don't even know where to start with your show and what questions to start asking you other than thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us. And it's a relief to see that you're not a demon. Oh, it's my pleasure. Those are only the people that I profile. I'm not a serial killer myself or a child abuser, so you can rest assured. But you know, they're never the people that you expect either. I have to say that. Usually if you've met someone that comes across as kind of seedy, that's not the person. People always say, I never saw it coming. Is that kind of the thesis of your show? Well, it does factor in quite a bit. I mean, occasionally I do come across a thing where someone says, you know, I met him and I knew something wasn't right about him. Like Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. He was on the dating game. It's funny because he seemed totally normal, but then he met the woman who won him at backstage and she said she was turned off immediately. He just came across as really creepy and sinister. Somehow she knew. I guess some people have that intuition that that's sixth sense and some don't. Your show is Human Monsters, which is a pretty self-explanatory title. Yeah. You said you're not like the people that you profile. Can you give a little bit of a background to the listeners who aren't familiar with your background? What makes you qualified to dig into the psyche of these people? In terms of my background, I am someone whose life has been touched by crime. Being a, a victim of child abuse, there was that. And my stepfather who did that was also a criminal. He was a sex offender. And off and on throughout my life, I knew people who were involved in crime, maybe in more lightweight pursuits like drugs or something. But I was always aware, based on that early experience, that there is this underbelly in society, in life. And at different times, I would take an interest in different forms of true crime, particular subjects. Like when I was like 20, I read a book about the Hell's Angels. And then other times it was like street gangs or serial killers or uh, aspects of child abuse. So when I found out that one very popular genre of podcast was true crime, I thought, well, there's an opportunity to get an audience and I could use some of the knowledge I already have. It's not my first podcast, but the podcast I started before it did not attract a large audience. One was about mental health. One was kind of a catch-all comedy show. Yeah. And as I said, those shows just never took off. And I started this show in 2019. So true crime was experiencing a big renaissance of sorts. Netflix was carrying a lot of true crime documentaries as it does now. Yeah. It's really hot right now, so I'm really riding the wave, so to speak. And what inspires you to choose the cases that you do? I usually avoid cases that have not been solved. A lot of people like to play detective. I know that's part of the appeal, but I usually go for cases that have been resolved. I do tend to go for more shocking cases, the serial killers, the child abuse, though a lot of people have a hard time getting through the child abuse cases, but ultimately they're attracted to true crime because of disturbing material. But, you know, there are areas of crime I am interested in that would not be popular with a show, like fraud. I, I don't like con artists. I don't like people who rip people off, but that's not, it's not dark enough for my audience. So they're not interested in that. Those are the cases that I know my audience is interested in. And so I keep 
delivering on that front. I'm fascinated by the Italian mafia. I have found they don't seem to be as interested in that, um, even though a lot of those guys do kill a lot of people. I guess because with them, it's a business matter that they don't seem to feel the same attraction. What is it about these extremely graphic, brutal crimes that you think the listeners are attracted to? Well, we live with this complacency that it would never touch our world. We don't even know anyone who's done it. That's what fascinates people about it. You know, we just can't imagine our brains would normally not want to go there. We can't imagine doing it. We can't imagine anyone we know doing it, but we want to know about it, or at least true crime enthusiasts do. We just want to know, like, how could someone do that? How how do they cross that line? There are many lines our society has drawn in the sand and said, you cross this line, you know, you're, you're going to get in trouble legally and you're going to be condemned by society. But yet there are people who run right across that line all the time. I am fascinated by taboo behavior and I know my audiences as well. I've explored, I think, probably every kind of taboo you can imagine. Everything from, you know, sexual abuse of children to abuse of animals. Uh, I probably won't be doing any more of those because even I find that one a little stressful. People actually tend to be more disturbed by that than when they hear about serial killers. The animals. Yeah, I guess because the animals, they see them as more victim-like maybe. I don't know. They seem as more innocent. Uh, not that the victims of serial killers are not. Yeah, the animals that episode. I think a lot of people deliberately avoided that one. It was about the market in Asia for dog meat and cat meat and all the other products they make out of them and how savage and brutal they are and, and how they slaughter the dogs and how they treat them. Yeah, that's a rough one. But yeah, generally they want to know about these stories and what drives the people who commit these offenses. One of the most disturbing things I've ever seen, it was a real video online. The people who are involved in the dog meat trade they would skin the dogs alive and not even kill them right away, just let them suffer. That was a hard thing to watch. Not that it would be easy to see a person skinned alive. That would be disturbing too. But maybe we feel the same way about animals that we do about children. You know, they're very vulnerable and defenseless for the most part. I mean, there's some people I wouldn't mind seeing skinned alive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I could make a list too, yeah. What about Christopher Wilder? I did see that you did an episode about serial killer Christopher Wilder. Yeah, so he was originally from Australia, and then he went to Florida and killed a bunch of girls there. You know, a lot of people think that if you commit these kinds of crimes, if you're an evil person, you're mentally ill. Evil is not a mental illness. It's a homicidal ideation combined with an inability to feel empathy or remorse, uh, which you could define as psychopathy. But yeah, he pretty much viewed, you know, women as disposable and killed all these uh, these young girls pretty much for sport, from what I could tell. We uh, did an episode on him, a pretty extensive episode, and we were just amazed by how he, well, I don't know if we all were. I think I was, I was very confused at how he could run a business and have a business partner and then, you know, moonlight as this like completely destructive individual. And it felt towards the end of his spree that he was escalating and he had accelerated to the point where he was like, I know this is going to end with me dead. He just shot himself into this homicidal stratosphere. And I'm curious if you saw the same thing there. Well, you know, one pattern I've noticed is that serial killers, they keep secrets all their life. You know, if you're nine years old and you find yourself having fantasies about killing people and dismembering them and 
all sorts of other horrific things. It's not something you're going to share with just anybody. And like Jeffrey Dahmer had those fantasies about killing and dismembering and eating men at a very early age. And he started drinking heavily as a teenager. It was because he had these dark secrets. And so living a double life, it's it's pretty much baked into their their lifestyle. They just figure out a way to make it possible, finding a place to hide bodies or doing it in places where it's not going to be witnessed. They know all about subterfuge. That's for sure. And he also had the young woman with him who, because she was emotionally detached because of violence in her own life, he wasn't able to kill her and instead used her as his accomplice in a, in a way. Just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Well, people who were abused were forced to accept violence or any, any other kind of abuse. They were forced to live with it. So I guess that's just, she was just taking the cue from her early life. You know, she was accustomed to accepting the unacceptable, just like how a lot of young women who were, you know, sexually abused as children go on to become prostitutes or strippers. They were so used to being in a position where they were forced to enter into sexual uh, interactions without their consent, without any desire on their part to do it. That's what makes it possible for them to do it. Otherwise, you know, it's like the rest of us can't imagine how someone can do it. They know what it's like, you know, when, when, it's, when it's not something you want, but you're forced to accept it. I know we were speaking a little bit about violence to animals. Have you noticed a connection between some of the murderers that you covered and violence to animals in their early life? That is something that has been observed by mental health professionals in the lives of many people who became murderers, or at the very least, who became highly violent people. They started off by torturing animals. You know, when you get into the whole nature versus nurture debate, for some people, it's either or. You know, some people, they just come out of the womb with this instinct to kill, to torture, to maim. You know, going back to Jeffrey Dahmer again, he did, I don't think he killed any animals, but he was fascinated by roadkill and by the the skeletons of dead animals. Yeah, it's something that seems to be almost baked in for a lot of people. I'd like to ask you about the length of your episodes. You have some episodes that are an hour, you know, an hour or so, and then you have some that are capping out at like five hours. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, some people... Uh, some people like the long ones. I've never had a complaint about any of the really long ones. Um, I think the longest I've done was the BTK episode because I included the, re the recording from his trial where he was confessing to the judge all of the things he had done. So yeah, that was over five hours. The thing about podcasts is that it's a form of entertainment where if you're just doing something like driving or working or whatever, you can just hit play and just let it go and not have to constantly go and get more. Yeah, people do tend to like the longer shows. I know that just about the medium itself, not specifically true crime. People don't want to listen to a podcast where the episodes are like, are just like 10 minutes. I know I don't want to, because there was a time when I started to wonder, like, are people going to get to the point where they only want bite-sized entertainment? They can't have an attention span for longer than five minutes. But it turns out with podcasts and things like long reads, people do sometimes want to just sit back and listen. I've had a couple of truckers say, you know, I like to let something play for three or four hours one drive and, you know. That makes a lot of sense. We don't take into consideration the people who don't comment about something that they like because usually the people will comment when they don't like it. So there's probably thousands of truckers out there who are like, yeah, I'm driving from New Hampshire to Florida and I could really use a couple of good episodes here to get me through. And yeah, something that's like four or five hours is perfect. Oh yeah. Those long haul drivers for sure. They want something that 
will take them down the road long periods of time. Obviously, they can't afford to just be constantly adjusting buttons and stuff. It's not safe. So yeah, they they like it if something's you know three or four hours long. I feel at this point like I'm cheating them if it's less than an hour. Kind of gotten to that point. The Christmas episode is just under an hour. I want to give them their money's worth at least. Do you ever have a moment when you're doing your show and you're like, I don't know if I can say these things? Because it's pretty extreme. And not like that. There are certain cases that have stuck with me because they were so disturbing. And I still have flashbacks. Like there was one about a girl who lived lives in London. And she was kind of basically kidnapped by this Muslim guy who kept her prisoner for like 13 years. He beat her, raped her every day. The abuse got to her to a point where like her body literally started to shut down. That was a really disturbing case. Paul Bernardo, that was another one. Because it was a very detailed telling of what was on the videotapes he made. And that was a disturbing one. So occasionally, yeah, I do get flashbacks. Probably the one that I get flashbacks from the most is the the Fritzl case. Joseph Fritzl, who kept his daughter a prisoner for 24 years, raped her, had seven kids with her. Yeah, that one keeps coming back. And you're not concerned with your mental health? Well, I've had poor mental health for so long that it's not like these are really going to upset that apple cart at all. I've been through a thing, a lot of trauma myself. At least this is somebody else's trauma. That's really, really interesting because we just had a recording where we were talking about true crime podcast content creators and how some of them will easily move from one story to the next. And they'll say, well, that's not my trauma. It's not mine to have. And you're the only person I've ever heard say you're doing it because it's not your trauma, because it's like a different type of trauma. Well, I mean, I'm glad I'm not the one going through it. Right. But at the same time, you know, it's um, some of this stuff is disturbing and it's hard to forget about, but not in a way that causes me mental health problems. It's just like I just I just think about it again, like, wow, how could he do that? You know, that's just mind blowing. How could a guy, you know, imprison and rape his daughter for 24 years? And yeah, being someone who had experienced trauma before, maybe it would be a lot harder if I hadn't, you know, just to come into it fresh. But I had. So I guess maybe there's a lot of calluses there that prepared me for it. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Don't take this question the wrong way. I'm just truly curious. Do you ever have anybody ask you how you might feel if someone had a podcast and they were featuring your trauma on their show? Yeah, that is an issue that comes up a lot. People say, you know, the victims will re-experience the trauma. I think no matter how you would tell the story, even if it was in broad strokes, like that uh, old A&E show, uh, Investigative Reports, um, they didn't really go into graphic detail. You know, there, there's kind of a mixed bag in terms of how people react to this. Because yes, some people do re-experience it. But on the other hand, there are people who have 
lost a loved one to a tragic crime like a homicide and they will create like memorial facebook pages and they'll say you know i don't want her to be forgotten i want to appear on tv to help parents and other people to recognize the signs that this kind of crime could happen and to know what to look for yeah it's a mixed bag in terms of both good and bad can come out of it but ultimately nothing's worse than what actually happened too, right? So I recently did an interview with a guy whose sister was murdered and uh, he, he wants the world to, to know about it, to remember her. You know, and it also reminds me of what I heard years ago. This poll found that young people, and by young, I mean like teenagers, they knew very little about the Holocaust, like next to nothing. Some of them knew nothing. And these memorial activists started to lean on the school boards to include a certain amount of Holocaust-related content in the historical curriculum. They felt like, you know, if we just forget about the Holocaust and the victims of the Holocaust, then it's almost like saying they don't matter, right? It's like, well, now we'll just forget about it. So they felt it's important to remember them. And I feel like that's something that could apply to true crime cases as well. If we just forget about the victims, then it's saying like they don't matter. In your episode about Christopher Wilder, you mentioned a near-death experience or possibly two near-death experiences that he had in his childhood. Were you sort of connecting that as a possible reason for some of his behavior later in life? Yeah, he almost drowned, didn't he? That was one of them. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe he got brain damage from these experiences. Maybe it's a really twisted version of uh, I'm going to live every day like it's my last and live life to the fullest. And unfortunately for him, that included killing people. But yeah, a lot of people who have gone on to commit horrific crimes did experience, uh, you know, accidents and other incidents early in life that uh, damaged them in some way. I mentioned Paul Bernardo. He had a transient blood clot pass through his head. It came down to his cheek and it was there when he was born. And my theory was maybe that passed through his brain and damaged the parts that are responsible for empathy and remorse. I mean, it's just a theory. I could be wrong. Yeah, a lot of these people have had those uh, have had injuries early in life. So maybe that was partially responsible for making him into the person he became, the murderer. You have a lot of information in your episodes about these individuals, and some of that information is very tough to find, almost impossible to find. There's rumblings that you might get some of this on, like, the dark web. It's an interesting observation, but ultimately you can't go anywhere near that without getting arrested, I don't think. The closest I ever came to getting the information from the dark web was I used a documentary as an information source for an episode about hurt core. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a genre child pornography where the abusers not only sexually abuse the child, but they they beat them as well. They torture them. I think that guy who made the documentary must have gotten a lot of sources from the dark web or in a secondhand way, but I've never, I've never gone to that kind of source to get the, that information. Um, usually I use books that are very well researched. Yeah, that's my source because I find just going on the internet can be problematic because there's a lot of poorly researched pieces. Uh, if you if you rely on news articles, a lot of them are repetitive. Uh, there's a limited amount of information, and they're mostly all the same. Um, so yeah, I usually use books. How dare you talk about my friend the internet like that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> are there any facts about serial killers or? common misconceptions about killers that you come across that you've seen out there that uh, you could share? There's always this gender issue where I find it's rare when they murder both men and women. It's usually all women or all men. 
BTK, his first set of murders was of a family and he killed them all. It was all males and females. But later on, it was just women. And the Golden State Killer, I think he, he killed men and women because he would break into people's houses and he didn't want witnesses. So he, if the man happened to be on the premises, he would kill him. But I think his objective was to target women. That was the first, the true crime book that was written about him. I'll Be Gone in the Dark, I think it's called. That's the only true crime book that ever scared me because I have a weird phobia about home invasion. I see that as like the ultimate violation. I can't imagine how frightening that must be. And the way he did it was to shine a flashlight in someone's eyes until they woke up. And, and also some woman said she heard it footsteps on a roof one night so yeah that was the scariest true crime story for me that one gave me some flashbacks i haven't done an episode about him but maybe i will one day we uh had the wonderful narrator of that book on crawl space when it came out gabra zachman if you read the book it's it's pretty scared like you said it stays with you and it's one of those fears that you have this home invasion but her narration if the book did that to you her narration is is pretty disturbing he was pretty diabolical in his tactics when he would do things like stack plates on the mail in the living room and he would say if i you know i hear those plates move then your wife is dead he was sadistic yeah what other cases stick with you I think usually the child abuse ones stick with me the most. Like the first case I ever did, uh, the Goler clan, they were a family, what you might call hillbillies. They lived in the backwoods of Nova Scotia, where I'm from. And they were products of intergenerational incest and child abuse. And their culture within their isolated location was so dysfunctional that, you know, a father would inform his daughter that she was going to have his baby. It wasn't like they were just abusing them and then accidentally conceived a child. That was baked into their whole lifestyle. I was just looking up the uh, episode of The X-Files that's considered one of the scariest episodes of The X-Files based on that. Oh, it's based on that? Really? I didn't know they did that one. I think it's called Home. And where are you guys uh, located in the States? We're in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a case out of Texas uh, that I covered. Uh, this girl, Lauren Cavanaugh, was kept in a closet for six years by her parents they trafficked her, they starved her, they abused her in every single way. And that's a pretty horrific case as well. The PTSD is just off the charts. Like this girl's tried to commit suicide several times. And it's it's really sad to think about the effects it had on her in the long term. You have a very polarizing amount of reviews on Apple Podcast. One review is literally saying it's evil. And the other one is love this podcast. And it's only like a matter of a couple of days in between reviews. Do you uh, pay any attention to your uh, Apple reviews or any reviews? You know, no one should read their reviews at all. <laughs> but I have. In terms of somebody saying, well, this is appalling. This is disgusting. Well, I don't know why they would listen to any true crime podcast. Because while they're not all as graphic as mine, it is pretty dark material. You know, if you can't bear to hear about murder or child abuse, then stay away from it. But I actually laugh about those particular reviews because kind of the reaction I'm going for. A horror movie maker isn't going to make a movie. Don't think you're going to be shocked by it. So I guess I'm kind of going for that. Most of the negative reviews were just about some certain short technological shortcomings. Like in the beginning, I was just using an iPhone to record and it picked up my, what they called mouth noises because I had performance anxiety and my salivary glands would dry up. And so you could hear sibilance and stuff like that. And so there were a lot of complaints about that. I did a segment called True Crime News 
and a lot of people didn't like my co-host. So those are really the two issues that people complain about the most. They don't mention them anymore, but otherwise, I don't know if someone's appalled by the case or my coverage of the case. Well, the show's just not for them. Anything that you can do that, that that's that polarizing and causes that much of a reaction has to be hitting a nerve somewhere, has to be striking a chord somewhere. So me bringing that up was not a critique at all. And you get the award for the only person ever to say salivary glands on this show. So congratulations. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> Never had a guest say that before. I still have the performance anxiety, but it doesn't hamper me like it used to. But yeah, another criticism was that like I was kind of monotone in the beginning due to performance anxiety. I wasn't able to come out of my shell. There was a learning curve, you know, I had to get used to being a little more extroverted. I didn't really have a background in broadcasting or anything before I came to this. So yeah, it took me a while to come into my own, so to speak. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. I see that you covered Fred and Rosemary West. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we recently covered a case, the murder of Melissa Jenkins, and she was murdered by a couple, a married couple, uh, Patricia and Alan Prue, and the Wests sort of came to mind when covering that case. But what insight can you give us into married couples who kill? I mean, that, that is one psychological knot that we could not untangle during our recording. Yeah, it's a matter of the wrong people meeting and having the wrong things in common. Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka, the West couple. Well, the Gallego couple. I forget what their names were. Yeah, sometimes people come together and they just... Chemistry can produce all sorts of things. And sometimes it can produce uh, murder and other taboo behavior. I think I've heard of the Prue case, but I don't know much about it. Fred and Rosemary West were these uh, two highly sexed people who also seemed to have brain damage. I think Rosemary had been sexually abused. There was a lot of rumors about her being abused by her father. He actually had an incident where he fell from a balcony and landed on his head. Maybe it was a perfect storm of abuse and brain injuries that came together. They were essentially perverts and murderers and and uh, unfortunately they found each other you know but yeah there I've, I've had some disturbing flashbacks particularly about what they did to their kids the kids were not spared any of the abuse either one of them was killed actually even just trying to understand how two people can do that you know and and one thing we we learned recently is that 30 to 40 percent of serial killers actually have an accomplice at some point during at least one of their murders whether it's luring or covering up later that number was pretty shocking to us well they tend to be very domineering people ultimately two domineering people can't they can't stay together long so they do often find someone who's totally submissive and that person can often get dragged into it sometimes through blackmail and sometimes through reward system in a sense it's like carla homoka became a a slave to Paul Bernardo emotionally. She was so in love with him that he he was able to get her to go along with her on all these horrific crimes. With Fred and Rosemary West, it was just two insane people who were insane in the same way and, and evil in the same way. What's your thoughts on the term evil? And even in your title, Human Monsters, we speak a lot with psychologists and psychiatrists and criminologists, and they often say calling somebody evil or a monster really takes away from the act that they've committed. Dehumanizing them, it's lessened the impact of their crimes. Uh, I think you've done a good job with putting human in front of monsters. Because then 
it kind of paints that picture, but what's your thoughts on that? As I was saying earlier, evil is not a, a mental illness. It's not like very few people have never had a homicidal fantasy. I think we've all known at least one person who made us so angry that we hated so much that maybe we caught ourselves fantasizing about strangling them or something. That's not unusual. In fact, there was once a poll, it might've been a Pew Research poll, and it found that something like 93% of the population confessed to having a homicidal fantasy. So that's not uncommon at all. The reason why the 93% doesn't follow through is because of uh, impulse control, because of uh, empathy, remorse, emphasizing consequences, valuing consequences, whereas the people who do follow through, that just doesn't matter to them. I mean, when you think about the consequences of getting caught murdering, you would have to really want to do it in order to accept, you know, you could die in prison, you could be sentenced to, you know, 50 years in prison. Yeah, most of us, we're able to keep that in check. Mind you, that's the product of living in a civilized country. If this all came crashing down, if there was no law, there would probably a lot be a lot more killing for survival's sake. We're very safe and privileged in this part of the world that we don't have to kill anybody. We're not always fending off murder, but it's not at all an unusual pathology to find yourself thinking about how you'd like to snuff someone out who's giving you a hard time, you know? And if you are thinking about that, we have a website that you can go to that's totally, totally <laughs> legit. And <laughs> rent a, rentahitman.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're familiar with that? I haven't heard about that one, no. It's, it's an actual website. So this guy did it, uh, and he's stopped how many oh like 50, assassinations yeah but about 50 murders it's it's written in a comedic way but people really write in to uh have you know their partners or something murdered and uh, and then he sends those tips to that local law enforcement once it gets to like a point where they're actually planning but yeah it's a pretty interesting <laughs> role that he's ended up getting for himself almost unintentionally he's kind of got to do this like behind the scenes work to help stop these murders there's no one else that that will do that will do what he's done you know it's it's kind of an interesting uh dilemma now that he's facing a lot of people think they would never kill if any of them are parents and i would say well what would you do if someone you know sexually abused your child or harm them in any other way a lot of parents will say i would kill someone who harmed my child so that's a pretty common thing yeah i find and we also had the jody plouch yeah plouche yeah whose father killed his abuser while he was being transferred. Oh, yeah, in the airport, right? Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was pretending to be on the phone and they went up and shot him. Yeah, so we had Jody, the son, on and it was a great interview that he <laughs> did from a Twin Peaks restaurant. And if you're familiar with the Twin Peaks restaurant, it's like a Hooters and he's got a he's got a beer and, and you can just hear like the restaurant noise around him. And it kind of added to the whole thing just to see him being like a regular dude. It was a pretty incredible interview. And pretty incredible to hear what repercussions didn't happen to his dad and their relationship after that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, there's a man in Texas. He caught a man sexually abusing his child and he shot him and, and he was acquitted. Maybe it has a lot to do with the Texas penal code. They don't put up with any garbage down there, that's for sure. I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling of wanting to do that if you were to catch someone hurting your own child. Punishment is not going to be too harsh, apparently, because Gary Plache, I believe he was released like pretty quickly after uh, after killing that man on, on television, his son's abuser. But, you know, it's pretty unbelievable because um, 
in most of the United States, the laws around pedophilia and, and people who commit the offenses, they're pretty strict in terms of registering as a sex offender, going door to door, telling everybody who you are, having curfews and all that. But in Colorado, there's next to nothing for that. There's almost no penalties. Like I interviewed a woman last week, you know, that happened to her kids in Colorado and there's almost no penalties there. And actually in Colorado is almost the promised land for pedophiles because they can commit these crimes and face almost no consequences. Jesus, get your shit together, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, in Florida, in Florida, there's a trailer park where it's just pedophiles. Like they're like, we'll put them here. You said earlier that the people that are responsible for these crimes are often described as, we didn't see it coming. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have any feelings on people who will go out of their way to do good. They're hiding those desires and, and they're living that double life, but they're doing a lot of good. Maybe they're donating a lot to charity. They're helping out at their you know local homeless shelter. Have you ever explored that? Like people who go above and beyond with the goodwill because they know that they're, you know, it's harder to identify that type of person with these crimes? Yeah, I wonder if sometimes they may view these disconcerting impulses and think, well, what if I started doing like a lot of good things and maybe that could counteract it? Maybe that would change me. Like so many of the people who sexually abused children are Catholic priests and Cub Scout leaders. And Ted Bundy worked for a suicide hotline for a while. And a case I just did, uh, Ronald Dominique, a serial killer from Louisiana. He volunteered for the Lions Club for a while. So I don't, I don't know what's behind it. I mean, certainly in the case of pedophiles, it means being put in a position where you can groom an entire organization and gain a position of trust and be have access to children thereafter. Maybe for some, it's just like, if I could immerse myself in activity that helps people, maybe that would get my mind off of these impulses to harm people. Maybe that factors into it. That might explain why Ted Bundy volunteered for Suicide Hotline. It's a wild concept. It's a wild notion, especially when you're coming from a position of, and I'm not trying to joke, but coming from a position where you're not a psychopath, when you're where you're not feeling those impulses and you actually feel empathy. So to imagine like pretending that and trying to counter that or try to build that wall to make you look better or make you feel better is just a really surreal feeling to me. Well, I think most people are capable of kindness and cruelty. I've seen that in people who are not criminals. I guess in their case, it's more extreme, but I don't think anyone is 100% either or. You know, there is the, the Jungian shadow, but ultimately I think even some of the most evil people had an unexpected good side. So yeah, that's something you find from time to time. Well, Morgan, this has been uh, great speaking with you today. We uh, really appreciate your time and uh, sharing your insight with us um, about your show, Human Monsters, and about some of the the monsters that you cover on that show. So uh, thank you for hanging out with us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks. 